You're listening to the Creating a Brand podcast, where we deliver weekly interviews on topics to help entrepreneurs make their first or next step in business the right one. I am your host, Alex Sanfilippo. Is the product or service that you offer habit forming? When people use what your company offers, do they get hooked and continuously come back for more? If this isn't something you've thought about, you may be missing out on a huge opportunity to earn more business. To cover the topic of building habit-forming products, I'm bringing back a previous guest, Nir Eyal. Nir is the author of multiple best-selling books, including Indistractable, which we talked about back on episode number 52, and is one of my all-time favorite books. He is also the author of the book that we're talking about today, which is titled Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. In this episode, Nir walks us through the framework for creating products that form habits among their users. For links to resources that will be mentioned during this episode, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 134. And now here is my fascinating conversation with my friend, Nir Eyal. Nir, welcome back to the Creating a Brand podcast. Thanks, Alex. Great to be back. You know, fun fact for the listeners, I've recorded two early episodes of the Creating Brand podcast, and both of them have been with you, Nir, like like way earlier than anybody else. So I think aside, like these are 8 a.m. I think last time we recorded at 7 a.m. I've never recorded with anyone else before 11 a.m. So you win <laughs> the, the game when it comes to early. And uh, if win. the listeners hear my voice cracking, they, they, under, they understand what's going on here. It's just very early. <laughs> I win the alarm clock award. I appreciate that. Yes, Thanks for do. getting up early for me. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm on the other side of the planet. It's uh, the late night award for me. Uh, it's 8 p.m. here in Singapore. Right. Yeah. We actually figured out right before recording that we are exactly 12 hours apart. So I appreciate you staying up and uh, hopefully the listeners appreciate me waking up. So glad to have you back again, man. Thanks. Thank you so much. So last thing on the show, we actually talked about your book, Indistractable, which is actually my second most recommended book to people after the Bible. That's the first book I recommend. But I'll uh, I'll take second place to that. That's fine. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Phenomenal book that I think should be on everybody's shelf. So I want to mention it again. Also, I want to encourage the listeners to go back and listen to that episode. They have not heard it yet. It's at creatingabrand.com slash 052. Also link to it in the show notes. Talking about Nier's book, Indistractable. But today we're going to be talking about your book, Hooked. And as a software founder myself, I found this just beyond valuable. I mean, just thought patterns I didn't even think about when I was designing. I'm having to go back to the drawing board and a couple of things to improve it for the users, the people that are actually going to be purchasing the product. So I want to say thank you so much for putting this book together. I'm real excited to dive into it today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm so glad that, uh, that you, you know, when you say that you're going to go back and fix things in the product, that's actually awesome. <laughs> that's a huge compliment right. because, you know, I've started three tech companies and uh, I know how difficult it can be when you're building a product that you know will improve people's lives if they would only use the darn thing and how frustrating it can be when you don't know what's wrong with the product, right? You think it's awesome. Why isn't the user thinking it's awesome? And so that's, you know, I really did write that book for you, uh, for people just like you who are building products who, uh, you know, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in fintech, whether it's in ed tech, whether it's in, you know, any kind of product that, that needs people to come back again and again, you've got to figure out how to make that product something that is sticky, something that people come back to on their own. Because frankly, you know, products can't afford to constantly spend tons of money on advertising and spammy marketing messages that do nothing but annoy people. You've got to figure out how to bring people back on their own out of habit. Yeah, I think that that's such an important point because so many of us and, and people that I, I meet with, they've got like this passion project they've been working on that they know is going to serve the world. They built some sort of product, some sort of service that they say, hey, this is really going to help people, but it's not been positioned properly. 
along with some other things that we'll get into today. But it's like they're hitting their head against the wall, knowing that they've got something that will serve the world really well. They just can't get people to to use it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what you're talking about here is really going to be helpful. And before we actually dive into some of the points, can you just quickly describe what Hooked is about and why you wrote it? I know we should have already hinted at a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products is a book I wrote when after my second company was acquired, I had a a hunch about how I wanted to spend my human capital, right? Investors, they deploy financial capital and they do that by diversifying, right? So a venture capitalist will invest in a bunch of companies and maybe one out of 10 will actually become something. But as an entrepreneur, you can't do that, right? You can't diversify your human capital. You can only ride one horse at a time and you have to keep riding that horse until somebody buys the horse or the horse dies. And so I really wanted to pick well in terms of what horse I was gonna ride, what what business I was going to start next. And I had a hypothesis that in the future, by, by, by the way, this was 2012, uh, that I believe that in the future that, that companies would, uh, their, their economic value would be a function of their ability to change user behavior and specifically to create habits. Because what I saw happening was that as screens shrunk, as we went from desktop screens, right, like those big honking displays on our desktops, to laptop screens, to mobile device screens, and now to wearable device screens like our our uh, watches, like our smartwatches, and now even more recently uh, to these auditory devices where there is no screen, as those screens shrunk and then disappeared, that meant that there was less room for what we call external triggers. There's just less room on the screen real estate to tell people what to do, right? With more pings and dings and you know messages, there's just less real estate for that. So that means, therefore, that if you don't build a habit, your company might as well not even exist, right? For many products, if you're not on the user's home screen, if you're not something that they turn to out of habit with little or no conscious thought, you don't exist in the company's mind. And it's it's just terrible how many companies build amazing products that people don't use <laughs> because they haven't built that habit. So I didn't want that to happen to me. I wanted to figure out if I was going to start another company, how do I make it into a habit? And so I looked around for a book on how to build habit-forming products and I couldn't find one. So I decided to, I decided to start writing one. And I started blogging about this topic and uh, after about a year of research and writing, I uh, got a call from one of my former professors at Stanford, uh, Baba Shiv, and Dr. Shiv said, hey, I really like your stuff. I really like your model. What if we taught a class together? And so he kind of gave me carte blanche to teach a class with him at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford, and I taught that for many years. Then I moved over to the Hasselplatner Institute of Design at Stanford, the D School, and uh, taught a class that then became my book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. So it's it's really for the kind of people who are building uh, primarily software, but not only software products. There's a lot of offline products that use these techniques as well. Uh, the book has sold well over uh, half a million copies. It's used in every wow. conceivable industry. Congrats, man. Thanks, thanks. And it's, it's really about using habits for good. It's not about addiction. It's not about, you know, the you know get, de- creating these compulsions. No, no, no. It's about building good habits in people's lives. I love that. So today we're going to dive into the four parts of the hooked model. But before we do that, talk about the habit zone. You've already been talking about it a little bit. Can you talk more about the role that habits play in this? Sure. So the idea here is that only certain types of products can even form a habit in the first place. Not every company can build a habit. And this isn't some magic pixie dust you can pour on top of any company and poof, you know, you get the next Amazon or something. That's not how this works. You have to have a certain type of company. And and look, not every company needs to form a habit. Okay. If a product is bought 
once or, uh, or not frequently enough, it's not a good candidate to form a habit. So uh, for example, uh, let's take a car insurance, okay? You don't buy car insurance habitually, right? That's something that you don't use car insurance unless something terrible happens, right? So you, you, you buy it once and then it's got, you know, you, you don't use it unless, God forbid, you get in an accident or something. So that doesn't necessarily need a habit. What that means, however, is that you need some other kind of competitive advantage, that you need what Warren Buffett calls a competitive moat. So what could that be? It could be economies of scale. It could be brand. It could be intellectual property. Uh, there's all kinds of competitive moats. One of those is a habit. Uh, and if you don't have a habit as a moat, then typically what happens, or if you don't have some kind of competitive moat, is that you're fighting your competition based on price and features, right? Price and features. You're fighting all day long on price and features. So, you know, Geico says, well, 15 minutes will save you 15% on car insurance. Then the next guy says, oh, yeah, well, uh, you know, 12 minutes will save you 20% on car insurance. And you're beating each <laughs> right. other up over margin. And that sucks, <laughs> right? Your margins are yeah, going to sounds zero. Terrible. It sounds yeah. terrible. And that's exactly what most companies face. But the companies that can build a competitive moat, right? The companies that can capture the monopoly of the mind, those are the companies that have a huge strategic advantage. I mean, think about Google, right? Why does Google have a monopoly of the mind? What is it? Well, you know, if you, if you talk to people, they'll say, oh, Google's just better, right? Well, actually, third-party studies find that when you take Google search results and put them head-to-head -head against Bing's search result, the number two search engine in the world, it's a 50-50 preference split. If people don't know which results are whose, so if people don't know which results are whose, if they don't know which is Bing, which is Google, and you just say which are better, 50-50 preference split. Third parties have found this. But what, what, what's happening here? What's happening? Why does Google own 86% of the search engine market? Because when you build a customer habit, people don't even consider your competition. When was the last time you ever said to yourself, ooh, I need to find some information. I wonder who has the best search engine. No, we don't do that. We just Google no. it, right? Out of habit. We don't even little... say search for it. We say Google it. We say Google we say, it, right? exactly. Right. So it's not that it's an actual technical monopoly, at least not in the same, maybe in the ad market they are, but they're certainly not on the customer behavior side, right? There's lots of search right. engines out there. But what happens when you build a customer habit is that the customer doesn't even consider the competition. They just use your product out of habit. And that is a huge, huge competitive advantage. Um, and so, so that, that's really what, what's at the core of this. So the criteria, this habit zone, is that the product must provide sufficient uh, uh, benefit, right? It has to actually scratch the user's itch. It has to give them what they came for. It has to uh, have some kind of value. But it also has to have sufficient frequency. So the number one reason, you know, I do quite a bit of angel investing. I've invested in over 30 companies and three unicorns so far. And uh, one nice. of the, thank you. <laughs> one of the things that probably the number one criteria that I will use to say, look, I don't think this is going to be a habit forming product is that the product is not used with sufficient frequency. Uh, that it needs to be, this is the rule, is the product needs to be used within a week's time or less. That, that tends to be the cutoff. There are some exceptions, but by and large, a week's time or less, if your customer doesn't use the product within a week's time or less, very, very difficult to form a habit. Wow, very cool. That's, it's great information to know and like understand that like the habit side of things is really the foundation for all of this. And from there, it really goes into the four parts of what you call the hooked model. Can you just give an overview of what those four things are and then we'll dive into each? Sure, sure. So the first step of a habit-forming product, and this could be online, offline, enterprise, consumer web, doesn't matter. As long as the product is used with sufficient frequency, we can build a habit around it. Uh, let's start, by the way, we should define a habit. A habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. 
It's about half of what you do every single day, day in and day out, is done out of habit. So we can use these habits to build good habits, right? We can help people exercise more, save money, connect with loved ones, uh, take their medication. There's all kinds of good habits we can build in people's lives. So in order to do that, we have to have these four steps of what I call the hooked model. The hooked model starts with the trigger phase. The trigger phase, there are two kinds of triggers. The first kind of trigger is called an external trigger. An external trigger, are these are the, the things in our outside environment that tell us what to do next. It's the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in your outside environment that gives you some piece of information for what to do next. Those are the external triggers. We'll get back to the second kind of triggers in a minute. The next step of the hook model is the action phase. So after the trigger, right? So let's say um, Instagram or, or I don't know, any, any product you want, right? Like any habit forming product that you think is habit forming, um, you'll get an external trigger. That'll be in the form of, let's say, a notification. The action phase will be the manifestation of the habit itself. So in the case of Instagram, it's open the app. Uh, Slack, it's, you know, scroll what, what, uh, your unread Slack notifications. Um, Salesforce, it's check your dashboard, right? It's the simplest action done in anticipation of a reward. On YouTube, it's push the play button, right? It's these very, very simple actions done in anticipation of immediate reward. Then the third step comes, the third step is the reward phase. Now the reward phase, it's not good enough just to give people what they want right? There's also an element of variability. It's what we call an intermittent reinforcement, that if you look back at the research of B.F. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning, he did some fascinating experiments in this realm. What he did, he took pigeons and he put them in what we call today a Skinner box. And the Skinner box had a little disc in, in the box and the pigeon could peck at the disc whenever they were hungry. And if it did so, the pigeon would get a reward. It would get a little food pellet every time the pigeon pecked at the disc. Great. That's called operant conditioning. Uh, if you have a, if you ever had a puppy or a kid, <laughs> you probably train their behavior in this way, where you know you do the behavior, get a reward. Great. But then one day Skinner had a problem. You see, he walked into his lab, and he realized he didn't have enough of these food pellets. He didn't have enough of these little treats. And so he couldn't afford to give it to the pigeon every time he pecked at the disc. He could only afford to give it to the pigeon once in a while. And what Skinner observed was, to his amazement, that the rate of response, the number of times the pigeon pecked at the disc, increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. So if sometimes the pigeon pecked at the disc, no treat, the next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a treat when there was some kind of variability, some kind of mystery, some kind of unknown, the pigeon would peck at the disc more often. So we see these variable rewards. This is really the engine of the hooked model. And we see this in all sorts of things, offline and online. If you think about, um, you know, slot machines are kind of the, the classic example. Why does, you know, if you put money in the slot machine and you pull the handle, you are going to watch to see what's going to happen. We want to know, are you going right. to win or not, right? That's what these of games of yeah. chance are all about. Uh, sports, right? Why are we obsessed with watching a ball or a puck bounce around we want to know what's going to happen. Who's going to score, right? Uh, when you watch a movie, right? You want to know what's going to happen at the end. It's all about the conclusion. How are things going to resolve themselves? A great book. Of course, social media is a great example, right? How many likes does something get? Uh, what do the comments say? What videos are posted? All about variable rewards. Very, very important. So it's about giving the user what they want and yet leaving a bit of mystery, a bit of uncertainty uh, around what they might find the next time they engage with the product. And then finally, the last step of the hook model, which is probably the most important as well as the most overlooked of the four steps of the hook model, is what I call the investment phase. The investment phase 
is really what differentiates this, uh, you know, the, the hook model from just your run-of-the-mill habit loop, right? We've all seen habit loops of a trigger, an action, a reward, great. That's good for your own habits. It's not good enough when it comes to product habits, okay? Product habits have to have an investment phase. The investment phase is where the user puts something into the product to increase the likelihood of the next pass, okay? And they do this by storing value. So what's with this concept that I call storing value is where the user, the more they interact with the product, the better it gets. Okay, and that's really revolutionary. That is something that an interactive technology can provide that past technologies can't provide is that we are all essentially making these products on the fly for a market size of one for ourselves. So if you think back to the history of manufacturing, you know, Henry Ford is credited with saying that you can have any color of Model T as long as it's black, right? Now, why did he say right. that? Because it was very difficult for him to retool his factory to make cars in different colors. Well, of course, you know, factories got better and now they could customize cars, et cetera. But if you look at online products specifically, you know, when you think about social media, for example, Every click, every interaction, dwell time, like how long you're watching, how between clicks, all that stuff is being tracked and improving the product to make it better and better the more you interact with it. And this is a really, really critical concept that uh, it, uh, a habit-forming product doesn't depreciate, right? Most products, if you think about things made out of atoms as opposed to bits, they depreciate. Your car depreciates, your furniture depreciates, your clothing depreciates. With wear and tear, it's worth less. Habit-forming products, they do the opposite. They appreciate. They get better and better the more that we interact with them. And so uh, I talk about in the book essentially how you can use these, these four steps to build a habit so that eventually you're no longer required to depend upon an external trigger. Eventually, remember I said earlier that we get back to the second type of trigger? The second type of trigger is called an internal trigger. An internal trigger, unlike an external trigger, which is about information outside the user, an internal trigger is about information that is stored inside the user's head. So it's what we do in response to certain situations, feelings, routines that prompts us to action, that we already know what to do next. And that's where the habit is really formed. And so the idea is to find that uncomfortable psychological state that you can attach your product's use to. You're not gonna make the uncomfortable psychological state, that would be sadistic. You're gonna find that psychological state of discomfort so that every time the user feels a certain way, they associate your product's use with that need that they're looking to, with that itch they're looking to scratch. And if you can do that, now the user is using the product without any kind of pings or dings, without spammy messages, without expensive marketing, they're using it on their own, out of habit. Wow, Nir, I have a feeling that you've uh, you've shared this information before, haven't you? <laughs> Once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> Once or twice, yeah. No, that, that was that was great. Uh, so this that's the hooked model, which again is trigger, action, reward, and investment. And I, I want to dive into each of them in a little bit more detail now. Uh, not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I definitely want to just ask a couple questions on this. Sure. We're talking about triggers, and you're, you're mentioning first off, there's the external and internal triggers. External triggers, what does a good external trigger look like? Because for a lot of us that are getting started, I imagine it first needs to be a form of external trigger. Is that correct? Right. That's right. We start with the external triggers, sending people through the four steps of the hook model, building value in the product so that eventually they don't need the external triggers anymore. They come back on their own, right? If you think about, uh, you know, when you're feeling lonesome, uh, you check 
Instagram or TikTok or something. If you're feeling bored, uh, you check the news, you check stock prices, sports scores, Reddit. If you feel uncertain, you Google, right? So all these products have connected an uncomfortable emotional state to the product's use. And so look, every product or service out there, offline, online, consumer web, enterprise, doesn't matter. The only reason people use any product or service is to modulate their mood, is to feel something different fundamentally. So you have to know what is that internal trigger? What is that emotional state? So to answer your question, how do you build a good external trigger? The difference between an external trigger that feels like spam and is annoying and people hate and one that feels like magic is one word. And that one word is context, context. So the closer you can couple the feeling, that internal trigger, that discomfort that the user is feeling with the external trigger, that's a good external trigger, right? The closer together they are, the more likely the external trigger is to be responded to and eventually form an association with the internal trigger. Uh, you want you want a good good example of this? I, I do because I was thinking there's a lot. I know of a lot more bad yes. examples of this of people who don't do this right because I more so feel like oh my gosh I don't no one wants that right like how many yeah. times have we looked at a screen and said that what's a good example of this? Yeah, so so I'll give you a good illustration of of a bad one first. So um, I was on a, a transcon flight before COVID when I was flying, uh, and I remember I was sitting across the aisle from a, a guy who was you know right across from me, and he was sound asleep. Okay, he was like clearly passed out. He had a big pillow under his head. The blanket was tucked in under his chin. And the flight attendant comes by and she looks at him and she says, sir. And he's asleep. He doesn't wake up. So she says it again a little bit louder. She says, sir. And still, he doesn't wake up. Finally, she says it a third time. She says, sir. And he says, whoa, 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 what is it? What is it? He finally wakes up and she says, sir, what would you like to drink? And... <laughs> <laughs> this is such a good oh, example no. <laughs> of what we do to people all the time in the product development space. We send right. them external triggers when it's convenient for us, right? Did, did the guy want to drink? Yes, but not right now. He wanted to drink not when he was sleepy. He wanted to drink when he's thirsty, right? So that's why it's so important to always think about internal triggers as a negative emotional state, okay? It's always an uncomfortable emotional state. Not when I'm feeling happy, not when I'm fine, not when everything's good. Leave me alone. <laughs> Send me the external triggers when I need the thing you, you you want me to act upon, when I feel that external trigger. So if uh, feel the internal trigger. So that, that's a, a very important point, I think, to remember as a product uh, uh, maker, as an entrepreneur, is to find those points in time. Where is your user in time and place? Ask yourself, like if you're building a habit-forming product, where would, that, would the user feel that internal trigger? Whether it's Boredom, uncertainty, uh, fatigue, stress, anxiety, whenever they feel whatever internal trigger prompts them to action, where are they in time and place? And that's the time and place you want to send the external trigger. Very cool. That's a great, great example there. Thank you for sharing that. So that's the first part, which is trigger. Moving on to action is the next part. And this is the behavior that's done in anticipation of the award. Can you talk more about how to design just a great action for people? Yeah, so here it's really about ease of use. Uh, here, the, the, it's all about friction, uh, that if you think about the, the very definition of technological innovation, it's about shortening the distance between that internal trigger, between the, uh, the recognition of the need and the satiation of that need. And I don't care if it's the cotton gin or the iPhone, fundamentally, that's what all technology does. It does nothing but shorten the work. It decreases the distance, decreases the effort. It makes us more productive in a unit of time by decreasing the number of steps. And this cannot be overemphasized. Uh, I see so many products out there that just are too effortful, 
right? That people don't use because they don't understand what the hell you want them to do. <laughs> right? Right. Uh, you know, a good rule of thumb is that if you're building a, a, a mobile app, it's one intended action per screen. Okay, one intended action per screen. I see so many products that have 6 million different things you can do. <laughs> and that might be fine like after a user has used a product for a while, right? Uh, that, that they, then they can learn new habits and new behaviors. But especially in the beginning, I see so many products, particularly ones that are, are run by engineers, that they want to show off all the cool things their product can do. So they stuff it all at once. And what that typically leads to is, is what we call an overload of cognitive load. That cognitive load is our ability to process information. And many times, if something is confusing, if it's illegible, if it's difficult to understand, uh, people don't sit there and try and figure out. They just quit and they just leave. Hey, Alex Sanfilippo here, and I want to take a quick moment to intentionally serve the world with you. Here's what I want you to do. Think of the one person you know who would most benefit from listening to this episode today. Now, I want you to send it to them, but also include an encouraging note explaining why you share this episode with them specifically. By doing this, you're helping me grow this podcast, and you're also adding value to the people you care about. With that said, thank you for your continued support. It means the world to me. And now, let's get back to today's episode. You know, this, this, I love this point. I'm actually building a, you know, this, I'm actually building a software that helps podcast hosts keep track of their episode releases. So it's a glorified checklist that they can make that has all these different features and things on there. We've done our best to keep it singularly focused, like one track, because when I looked at things like Trello, Monday.com, Basecamp, all, all great softwares, but right when you register, it is super, super overwhelming because mm. here are the 5,000 things that this can do. And I remember, I, this is like a side note here, but I, before actually starting the software, I registered for one that someone said was really good. They offered me $20 the second I registered if I'd watch a 12-minute video about it. Hmm. And I, I still hit no. And <laughs> 10 minutes later, I left and never went back because there's so much to do. How do companies like that ever even make it? Again, I'm building something with like one track, so I'm doing my best to keep it very simple so yeah. you can't get lost. But how does a company like that even make it? Because they have to show all their features because that's what they're promoting, right? So they can yeah. do all these things for you. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a few ways. So I think there's, there's two main tracks. Either it's, uh, it, you take the position where it's self-service. And in which case, if you expect the customer to do everything on their own, it has to be crazy simple. Uh, you know, I, 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 I call this the inebriation test, that you need to design a product that the customer can use even if they are very drunk, right? Even if they're inebriated, they could still use your product. If it doesn't pass that test, Forget it. It's not going to happen because you, we've got to have some sympathy for our users, right? They've, the kids are screaming and the, the work is overdue and the bills haven't been paid. And there's a million things going on in their life. The last thing on their list is your stupid product. <laughs> you know, like, let's, right. be, let's be honest here because we are yeah. also consumers. We know this happens with the products we use as well. So while it's our baby, our product is the best thing ever. Why isn't everybody using it? We have to understand that people have very busy lives. There's a lot on their minds. So we have to be sympathetic and know that, you know, this has to be something they can do with just a few clicks. And so the, the best product products when it comes to the action phase are very, very easy to use. Now, specifically with this process of onboarding, uh, you know, one track is what I said earlier of self-service, in which case it needs to be crazy easy. If it's a kind of product where it does require a heavy onboarding experience, and by the way, onboarding happens once. So onboarding is not in the purview of the hook model. The hook model is about repeat behaviors. Onboarding, getting someone to start using your product in the first place, that happens one time, but it's a big problem. So the other track that we can use is to do a handheld 
uh, onboarding process where we actually hold someone's hand through the product. And a good example of this is uh, Superhuman. Uh, do you use Superhuman for your email? I do not. No, it, I'm it, actually I'm not familiar with that. Oh, it's fantastic. So it's I've seen hundreds of email apps in my day. Uh, I've seen all kinds of companies take a run at this. And Superhuman is the first one that has done it successfully. Uh, I, I don't have any affiliation with the company. I know the CEO, Rahul, very well. But I, I don't, you know, I did, uh, I, I'm not an investor or anything. So I have no connection. I use the product. It's fantastic. Now, what he did is Rahul figured out that email is very idiosyncratic, that everybody hates email, but everybody uses it in their own special way. I have my own folders, I have my own tags, I have my own classifications, I use it my way. Don't mess with the way I use email. And so what Rahul figured out is that the reason that all his competitors failed was that they all had self-service platforms, right? That's what we talked about, that first path. But email is really cognitively heavy, right? Like superhuman's trick is that they have all these shortcuts and keyboard things you need to learn, and that's when you get the full value from the product. So Rahul knew that people would never onboard themselves. So what did he do? He said, look, in order to use our product, and it's a monthly fee, it's cost, I think, 30 bucks a month. In order to use this product, we will not take your money unless you do an onboarding on the phone with us. And so I was one of the early users. Rahul called me up, said, we have to schedule, you know, I think it was 45 minutes. And just like we're doing now where we could see each other, he sat down with me, you know, over video conference, and he walked me through exactly how to use the product. So it's not scalable at all. But you know what? For a product that has a customer lifetime value as high as his does, it's a $30 a month product, right? So he's making 360 bucks a year. And once you start using it, you never stop using it because email is incredibly habit forming. I'm not going to switch back to Gmail after I've made all this investment in how to use superhuman. So he's got me for life, right? So for him, it's totally worth it to spend an hour onboarding me and getting me up to speed and knowing that I learned exactly what I need to learn to see that magic in his product. So sometimes you want to go the self-serve way. Sometimes it's perfectly okay to go the, the full service, you know, concierge handheld way if your product is, is on the more complex side. But, but only if you're economic supported, by the way. What you can't do, <laughs> you can't have a product that has a low customer lifetime value. You probably then can't afford to do all the handholding. But if you have a high customer lifetime value, go for it. Invest in the, in the handholding. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I love that. This moves us right into the third part, which is reward. And you shared a couple of very interesting things about this. So I'm interested in hearing how like, you make the reward variable. It's not always the, the same thing over and over again. So I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, endemic to all sorts of products and services. It's what makes, uh, entertainment entertaining is always variability. Uh, if you think about, you know, why people, uh, day trade, right? Why do you see so many people on Robin hood these days? Why is Robin hood doing so well? It's a slot machine, <laughs> right? Like we, it's, right. it's basically just the stock market going up and down and up and down. Day trading is a terrible, I'm just going to make a public service announcement, folks. I know some people are, are going to disagree with me. Day trading is a really bad way to make money. Okay. <laughs> You're much better off. All the studies show uh, that it's much better to just put your money in a low cost uh, ETF and, and sit tight. Don't do anything, but people love it, right? <laughs> because yep. it's a slot machine. It's the variability of up and down and up and down. Where's the stock market going? Do I have any kind of control or agency to try and think that I'm a genius that knows where the market is going? Newsflash, you don't, but 
it's not going to do any good even if I told you that because people who are into day trading won't listen to me anyway uh, because they <laughs> love the gambling. They love the, the, the high they get from, from playing uh, the markets. So if you can find some element of variability in your product, right, some number that goes up and down, some conversation that, that involves uh, some bit of mystery, uncertainty, uh, that's very, very powerful. So there's three types of variable rewards. We have what we call rewards of the hunt. So rewards of the hunt are about uh, you know monetary rewards, uh, any kind of material possessions, any information rewards, that's rewards of the hunt. Rewards of the self are is, is all about the search for mastery, consistency, competency, and control. It's about checking those little boxes right on your to-do list or uh, checking your emails, you know, uh, the unread messages to see what's in them. Those are rewards of the, of the self. And then finally, the rewards of the tribe, which is probably the most powerful of the three. These are social rewards, competition, cooperation, uh, anything that involves other people that has this element of variability is also very engaging and very habit-forming. Is this where gamification can kind of come into a, a, a product or service that you have? And do you have any thoughts on that? Because gamification seems to be a buzzword in this mm. space right now. I've actually heard you talk about this before. So I know that like you have maybe a different yeah. opinion than most people. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that a little bit. Yeah, I'm not anti-gamification. I'm anti the inappropriate use of gamification. I will say that nine times out of 10, gamification is used inappropriately. Uh, gamification is, is using game-like mechanics in non-gaming environments. So points, badges, leaderboards, things like that. The problem is that gamification tends to be what we call chocolate-covered broccoli. Chocolate-covered broccoli is when we take something kind of gross and we put something nice on top of it and we think, oh, now it's going to be delicious. Everybody's going to want to eat their broccoli. But of course, that just makes an unholy mess. And so what we've seen over the past several years with gamification is that, you know, people try to use it in an inappropriate manner. And the way they mess up is that they don't first start with the internal trigger. So if the internal trigger is boredom, gamification is great because gamification entertains. Wonderful. There has to be a connection there. But what if uh, the internal trigger is workplace stress? I don't want your points in my face when I'm stressed about making my numbers. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so you've got yeah. to figure like what you want if you're stressed at work, what you want is assurance. You want a sense of progress. Right. So just sticking in points and badges and leaderboards uh, doesn't always cut it. So it's great when the internal trigger is the right fit for the job. And for the most part, you know, I, I don't like a gamification tends to be a cop out. It tends to be an easy way like, hey, let's just put points behind it. Let's put, you know, badges. And it tends not to work because people haven't considered what the real internal trigger uh, is. Uh, they just kind of look for the solution before they truly understand the problem. So it's not that gamification is always bad. Sometimes it's very good. But most of the time it's it's misapplied. It's good to know. Like, I, I was curious about that. I'm somebody who added to one of my products a leaderboard. And I immediately did, because I just heard people talking about gamification. So I'm like, oh, let's throw a leaderboard up there. I immediately saw a behavior shift mm. in our in the members using that software. So I was interested. I'm like, oh, wow, is there more things we can do here? And that's when I started seeking you out, because I know that you have this book hooked. I'm like, maybe Nier could... I could learn something from him. So I started just listening to more of your content. And uh, I wanted the listeners to hear kind of your outlook on gamification as well. Like you just have to be careful with it. There, it has its places, but also has places where it shouldn't exist. So I'm, I'm glad yeah. that you talked about that for a moment. I think that's a really important point. And people will game games, right? Like any gaming right. structure you put in front of people, uh, people will find a way to game it. So that you will oftentimes create perverse incentives. Like leaderboards are a classic example. That people think, oh, we're going to put in leaderboards because it's going to create more engagement. And what oftentimes happens is that it actually creates less engagement. Why? Because you're creating a psychological effect that if you're not number one, two, or three, you give up. 
right? And so by telling people their rank like that, if you don't, if you're not very careful, there's some ways around this, but if you're not very careful, you can actually disincentivize people because they feel like they lack the ability to ever be one, two or three. And so the vast majority of people just give up. You know, I'm going to pick my wife for a minute. She'll hear this episode before it comes out. So maybe I'll have to edit it out, but who knows? Um, but <laughs> oh, this she, is a good part. Yeah, yeah. She was actually, for a while, she wanted to learn Spanish. So she, she started using an app. I, I, Duolingo, maybe is what uh-huh. it's called. And it has these little leaderboards, but it puts you in, in buckets. So it's not yes. like overall. It's you and there a group that are around where you are. But I realized that she was like, I was like, wow, you're really serious about this. Like, Because every day she was getting on it. And she's like, no, I just have to stay at the top of my group. Like, I want to be the first place of that group. And then I realized she wasn't even learning Spanish. She was just learning to take the tests really well so she could stay at the top of the group. And she finally just stopped. Like she actually did okay with Spanish, but for the amount of time she was investing, I'm like, I don't think you're really learning Spanish. You're learning how to stay top of leaderboard. And I think it was creating a bad behavior in the people using the software. However, it kept them coming back, but I don't know if they were actually learning Spanish because of it. So that's just an interesting side note there. This is, this is such a great point. I'm so glad you said that because it just illustrates that, look, fundamentally, all these tips and tricks and, uh, you know, brain hacks or whatever you want to call them, they're great, but they don't work long term unless you are actually solving the user's problem. Don't skip that step, right? Don't just use the, the, the tactics without knowing what ends you are using these means for because fundamentally, you're going to get what you just saw. Yeah, you nailed engagement. And then one day your wife says, wait a minute. I can't speak Spanish that well. <laughs> like, what am I doing right. here? And they leave. And by the way, we see this with social media, right? That, you know, when, when we all started getting on Facebook, it was awesome. I was connecting to friends, keeping in touch with people who, you know, uh, now live in different geographic regions. It was awesome. But then, and, and of course, you know, Facebook, this, this is where I learned all this stuff. I learned from the social media companies. I learned from the tech giants how to do this stuff. But we see that happening right now with, you know, nobody our age uses Facebook anymore. Maybe they're using right. Instagram or TikTok, but very few people our age are actually, you know, in our cohort at least, are using Facebook because it's not, it's not giving them what they originally came for. And look, they use all the tricks, right? They use all the psychological manipulation you can think of. But eventually, if it doesn't fundamentally give people what they came for, if it's not connecting people together, if it doesn't make them feel good, if it doesn't give people the, 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 the thing that they came for in the first place, they will leave. So this isn't some way that you can magically get people to do things they don't want to do. You fundamentally have to leverage what they want and give them what they want. But this, this model can make sure you're delivering in a way that does form that habit. This, this is just a gold point right here that you're sharing right now. Like we, we've got to learn to keep the main thing, the main thing. If it's to help and to serve somebody, you have to remember that. Like all these tactics that we're talking about and things like that. Yeah, sure. It can help, but you have to make sure at the end of the day, am I actually solving this person's pain point? Am I solving their problem? Am I helping them improve their life or overcome whatever this might be? And if you're building a game, then does it scratch the itch of them having a game that they enjoy playing? Right? Like, but whatever we're doing, we have to make sure that we keep that person that's using it the focus. So I'm really glad we brought that up near. I think that's super important. And I'll move along to the actual the final point here. That this is the, what makes the, the hooked model the hooked model, right? And that's the investment part of it. Can you talk more about how to properly create an investment for users? Yeah, I mean, I think the best place to start is to start with an offline example, right? So I'll tell you about my, my barber. So I've gone through many barbers in my life. And uh, the one I stick with is the, the, the guy who remembers my name. Uh, he remembers what I do for a living. He remembers, most importantly, how I like my haircut. So I don't have to explain it to him every time. 
And uh, I've gone to, you know, the, hair, the, the barbers I don't go back to are the ones who didn't bother to learn anything about me. I had to explain it to them every time. And I had to, you know, oh, you know, like small talk and all that. You know, now I go back to the same person because they remember me. Why? They invested in that relationship. They listened to what I was saying, right? I to told them my name. I told them how I like my haircut. I, you know, we had that pet experience and they remembered it. And so that's, that's so obvious offline, and yet so many of us online for our products uh, don't do that, right? And, and even offline products. I don't want people to think that this only applies to online products. Every business today is an online business, right? If you have a website, right. if you use a, a CRM software, you're, you're, you're already an online business. So the idea here is what type of information can you collect from the user willfully, right? And it turns out studies find that people will happily give you information about them if they have something uh, f for them when they give you that information. What they don't, the reason that information sharing gets a bad name is because of data leaks, right? What I call data gossip. So it's almost like if, if you went to lunch with a friend and uh, you had a great lunch and you tell them about your life and hey, what's going on with your career and your kids, et cetera. And then you get together with them like maybe a few weeks later and you go out to lunch again and you realize they don't remember a single thing you told them. Well, they've either got amnesia, in which case they need to go see a doctor, or they're a terrible friend, right? You're not going to be friends with them for very long. So right. it's the same thing with our, with our customers, right? We want to be able to collect that information to make the relationship better, to improve the product with use. Now, what people don't like, like imagine if you went to that, that lunch with a friend, and then you find out a few days later that they went and told a third party, right? They went and told a, another person about everything you divulged to them. Well, that would be a breach of trust. That would be gossip. And so that's where collecting information about our customers gets a bad name. It's when, you know, somebody else gets the information. A company will sell that customer information to a third party. That's when it's unethical. That's when it gets a bad name. But customers want us to improve the product we use with use. They want to build that relationship. The problem is that most companies don't ask for that information or they don't know what to do with that information to make the product better. So this whole idea of the, this investment here, this works on both sides, right? Like we have an investment as the, the actual people that are creating it to actually use the data properly uh, and not sell it and things like that. But also the person, they're willing to invest more based off the reward that comes from it, right? Or knowing that they can, they can trust you with it. What's a good example of a company that you've seen get this investment phase really right? Yeah, so I'll go back to social media. I think that they do it really, really well uh, because every bit of information that you put into the product, you know, whether it's data, content, followers, reputation, skill accrual, any of these things. Of course, money is the most obvious, but that's kind of the last thing that people will put in uh, as an investment. But any of those things, right? If you, if every time you uh, create a, a a profile, that's a form of investment. Every time you friend somebody, like something, uh, f follow someone, any of those actions are improving the product with use. You are tailoring the product to your preferences. And so that, that has two aspects. One, it makes the product better because it feeds some algorithm to then show you new content in, in the future, for example. But it also leverages a psychological effect called the Ikea effect. You know, Ikea, like the furniture store. And this, this is actually a real effect. Uh, this has been studied by Dan Ariely at, uh, at Duke. And he showed that when people build something, they like it more, kind of like when you build IKEA furniture, you, you, you like it more, right? You're like, look what I did, right? Like I, I invented this thing, I made it out of nothing, right? My wife and I have an IKEA that's just three minutes down the road and we'll occasionally get things from there, but I have a rule, nothing that you lay down on or sit on. There you go. There's a table, like you can't have it because it's all just gonna collapse at some point. Yeah. But how many of us, we make this stuff when we're in college and then we keep it in our, you know, we keep it for years and years because there's like this IKEA effect of, well, I build that, right? I birthed this thing and so it turns 
turns out that when we make things, when we when we uh, customize things uh, with with a company, we have the same effect. We value it more when we put effort into it. It makes sense. You know, I'm thinking back to Facebook that no one our age really enjoys Facebook as much as maybe we once did. But I keep it. And one of the main reasons I really like when it shows you, I think it's called like on this day and it kind of shows you some history Mm, stuff. I think I've got 14 years or I don't know how long it's been around. I've I've got a lot of years of data on Facebook now. So like, although I don't enjoy it and I'm not a guy who logs on every day or anything like that, but occasionally I'm like, oh, there's this picture. I know it's on Facebook. If I was to delete that, that would be I'm invested, right? Like I have an investment within Facebook at this point because I've been with them for a long time. Right, right. So it's pretty sticky. Yeah, yeah. And that's their only hope of, of re-engaging into your life. And why you won't delete it is because, you know, you, you have all these friends you're connected with. And what about all these photos you uploaded and all this stuff you put into the product that made it better and better with use? Absolutely. All right. So we've covered the, the four phases now of that model, which are the hooked model, which is trigger, action, reward, and investment. Nier, this has been just a great conversation. I've learned a lot from this, learned a lot from the book. It's going to help me a lot as a software creator myself. I wanted to ask before we end our time together today, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I guess my final thought would be that that you know we can use this for good. I think you know that that that's the tech companies have recently got a bad name, and I'm not a tech apologist, right? I think there's a lot of stuff that that the tech industry could do better, but I think you know that, that we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think that the way we make technology better uh, is by having more people get into this industry, is by realizing that there's so much opportunity. This is like the second inning for the internet right now. There's so much left to run here. And so my my uh, my final words here, or my parting uh, thoughts would be to encourage you to use what you've learned today on this podcast to build something helpful for people, to engage them in something meaningful, something important, to, uh, you know, I take liberties with the words of Gandhi, to build the change you want to see in the world, because I really do think we can make the world better by building these habits for good. It's a beautiful way to end this episode, Nir. I really appreciate your time. Thanks again for coming back on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime, Alex. Not only is Nir a delight to talk to, but he is also a genius. The hooked model framework that Nir shared with us is the best way to create a product or service that people will build a habit around using, and hopefully, as Nir said, truly be served by and help improve their lives. I encourage you to really study this model and begin finding ways to implement it into your business. Additionally, if you've not heard the previous interview I did with Nir, I highly, highly recommend it. You can find that at creatingabrand.com slash 052. Nir, thank you for coming back on the Creating a Brand podcast to share your wisdom with us once again. For links to Nir Eyal's book, Hooked, and to his blog, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 134. Thank you as always for listening. I'm looking forward to bringing you another Masterclass episode next week.